This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with their Extension Crop Report. Wheat is filling out the heads and really starting to get its golden color now. In most cases, these fields will next be planted to double crop soybeans shortly after harvest, but soybeans are not the only option available for devil cropping. Sorghum, usually called milo around here, is another option that should really be looked at. This crop is more commonly double cropped farther west in the state, it is more drought tolerant and can fit into a shorter time frame. Right now, our soil profile in most areas is much drier than usual, and sorghum can deal with this better in the short term. However, one of the main reasons to double crop sorghum is weed control, and if a herbicide was used in the wheat, that won't work for the soybeans. Astrazine or chlorocenamide can be used pre-emergent to give a residual control for a number of weeds. And for some farmers, sorghum has a much lower risk of dicamba drift from neighboring fields than non-dicamba-ready soybeans. There are a few other broadleaf herbicide options available for sorghum that soybeans don't have that can help control things like horsetail or pigweeds that are problematic in soybeans. There are some important things to keep in mind when double cropping sorghum. Double crop soybeans, being controlled by day length, are either the same length or longer types in full season beans. Sorghum, however, is controlled by heat units just the same as corn. Devil crop sorghum should be earlier maturing so it can finish in time before the frost. Late planted sorghum also needs slightly higher seeding rate as it won't tiller as much as earlier plantings. Generally, in this part of the Kansas and Missouri, it would be better to use narrow row spacings to fill the canopy faster. When it comes to fertilizer, the biggest difference is nitrogen application. Nitrogen for sorghum recommendations are often around 80 to 100 pounds of nitrogen per acre. This rate can be increased by 20 pounds if there is a heavy wheat residue that can tie up nitrogen, unless the application method used can bypass that residue. Sorghum will also make use of nitrogen in MAP or DAP for fields that are deficient in phosphorus. That wouldn't be as useful for soybeans. When it comes to yield, there can generally be yield reduction expectation in comparison to long season sorghum. However, in some years, that might not be the case. In Kansas, the planting date goal should be time to avoid the hottest weather during flowering and still have time for grain fill before the frost. Fortunately, sorghum can deal with hotter temperatures before pollination than corn. Last year, it was so dry that a few double crop sorghum fields didn't make much yield and had trouble finishing grain fill, but many double crop soybean fields ended up with nothing. The Farm Bill ARC or PLC payments are a little more favorable for sorghum as well. Along the same lines as sorghum, sedan grass, midlets, and hybrids are also double-cropped options that can make a whole lot of forage. Enough so that it can be hard to get it to dry down in September, which is why much of it is made into silage. In conclusion, sorghum is another viable option for double-cropping. It won't ever take the place of soybeans in this area, really because of commodity prices and the cost of production. But in some areas, it could work well in a field that soybeans won't. If you need any information on late planting sorghum seeding rates or fertilizer recommendations, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Producers looking to cut operational costs but maintain cattle performance may consider modifying feeding frequency. Labor is an important factor in developing nutritional programs. Management practices that add labor and time demands should be justified by their impacts on animal productivity, health, or operational profitability. Similarly, 
Practices that add expenses must be evaluated for cost effectiveness. When you pencil out the cost of various supplements on a dry matter per unit of energy and protein basis, you may discover this convenience of self-fed supplements come at a price. Is that price of convenience compensated by your reduced time and expenses devoted to feed delivery? The ideal number of feedings per week depends on the type of supplement being offered. Some feeds do not lend themselves to less than daily deliveries. Ionophores or urea containing products delivered through feed can't be fed only once or twice a week and be expected to work as intended. There are differences between energy and protein supplements for optimum feeding frequency. There's evidence that less than daily frequency of protein supplement feeding to cattle on low quality forages has little or no effect on performance, despite lowering forage intake. On the other hand, the story is different when considering energy supplements. Many studies have been conducted looking at animal performance when feeding daily, every other day, and every three days using higher energy feedstuffs. Due to the rumen pH fluctuation negatively affecting forage digestion, it's best to deliver this type of feedstuff on a daily basis to maintain animal performance. Advantages to daily feeding include seeing your livestock, lending to more opportunities to check health or observe other problems. Secondly, daily feeding conditions cattle to human interaction, leading to improved cattle handling. There are, however, advantages to infrequent supplementation beyond the obvious benefit of delivery cost reductions. In mud prone conditions, feeding less often can reduce surface damage. Feeding large quantities in fewer feeding sessions means that more feed is offered per feeding. Assuming that adequate trough space is available, this may allow more timid cattle to feed in a less competitive situation. And cattle who expect daily feeding may alter their grazing behavior in anticipation of feeding, affecting grazing efficiency. Consider the feedstuff and feeding levels used when deciding on appropriate supplementation frequency. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Not all aquatic weeds are bad. In fact, vegetation in and around a pond is valuable for fish and wildlife habitat. It can also help reduce stream bank erosion. But when vegetation grows too abundant, it becomes weeds and some control is necessary. When considering aquatic weed control, keep these two points in mind. Prevention is always better than treatment and you must identify the weeds before you consider control. Keeping weeds from ever becoming a problem is much better than trying to treat and control them once they become established. The two best strategies for prevention include reduce fertilizer runoff into your pond and reduce the amount of silt 
running into your pond. A great option for controlling both issues is to maintain a grass buffer strip around your pond. This continuous barrier of permanent grass helps to intercept soil particles and nutrients as they wash off surrounding fields or lawns. It also helps to limit sediment washing into your pond which causes shallow slopes and water depth and more weed issues. Grass is also a great sponge for absorbing fertilizers like nitrogen and phosphorus. It helps prevent these chemical elements from running off from surrounding areas and into the pond. Less fertilizer in the water means less algae and other weed problems. Take a serious look at what you can do to prevent problems. It will be significantly cheaper than dredging out a silted-in pond or applying some of the weed controls. The first step in controlling algae and other aquatic weeds is to properly identify the weeds in the pond. If you miss this step, you will likely waste money on products that don't work and delay getting control of the situation. If you are unsure of what type of weeds you are dealing with, you can bring a sample into our extension office for identification. Options for pond weed control are mechanical and physical, which is pulling, raking, or physically removing weeds is a good way to control small quantities. Biological, which is grass carp, a non-native plant-eating fish that will reduce the abundance of some aquatic plants. However, grass carp are not the silver bullet in terms of aquatic plant management, given their preference for specific types of plants that can limit their usefulness. Grass carp may also increase the occurrence of algae blooms as a result of their redistributing nutrients in the water. Herbicides are another option. There are a number of herbicides that control aquatic weeds, but you must match the correct product with the correct weed. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave and with your K-State Research and Extension Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Sweet potatoes are one of the most nutrient-dense crops you can plant in your garden and one of the easiest to grow as well. Sweet potatoes are grown from vegetative propagules known as slips, which develop the root and vine simultaneously. Vines can get up to 10 feet long in the best growing conditions, so it's important to give them enough space to stretch by planting slips 9 to 18 inches apart in a row, with rows 3 to 4 feet apart. Slips should be planted 3 to 4 inches deep in the soil after the temperature gets above 60 degrees in the soil. In Kansas, they are usually planted in mid-May to avoid any potential of a late frost, which will kill off the vine. Sweet potatoes mature anywhere from 95 to 120 days after planting, depending on which variety you are growing. Pulling or cutting the vine a couple of days before harvesting will toughen the skins and reduce damage from harvest. Expect a yield of around 2 pounds of tubers per hill and 400 bushels per acre. After harvest, sweet potatoes need to be stored in a warm, humid room of at least 85 degrees and 90% relative humidity for about a week. This process, known as curing, will increase sugar content, heal damage from harvest, and deepen the orange color of the flesh. 
After curing, store in a cool, humid environment until ready for eating or selling. Sweet potatoes can be stored for 6 to 10 months in the right conditions. Sweet potatoes have very few pests that will attack the crop, but a few to keep an eye out for are flea beetles, the sweet potato weevil, and wireworms. Any pest that targets the vine will have minimal impact on the yield of the crop, so it's important to balance that fact with the damage seen. If damage is tolerable, consider manual control instead of insecticide application, as you could accidentally kill off natural predators along with the pests. The sweet potato weevil and wireworm will be responsible for most of the damage to the tubers, and if selling sweet potatoes at market, these will necessitate post-harvest control. Crop rotation will also ensure that these specialist pests cannot build up their respective populations over multiple growing seasons. Ornamental sweet potato vines will also produce tubers, but these tubers will not be as tasty or large as those bred specifically for food production. The ornamental varieties were bred specifically for their foliage characteristics and not their tubers, so although they are edible, it is best to let the ornamental varieties be ornamental and the food varieties produce your tubers. Unlike other vegetables, the quality of sweet potatoes does not degrade with increased size, but all tubers should be handled with care until they have a chance to cure so that you don't accidentally bruise your crop. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.